Today we're going to look back into redemptive history to the book of Nehemiah. From there we can always look forward to our own redemption in the future. But the truth of the matter is, we still have to live in the here and now. We look back in amazement at what Nehemiah went through and just what he was asked to do. However, we should never forget what God asked us to do. We, his people, dismiss the kids. We, his people, have been entrusted with the gospel. A message of salvation to a world that does not know God. There are many ways to approach Nehemiah's narrative. Perhaps as an historical account. Perhaps as a sovereign plan. Or even as a gracious act. And you know what? I think each one of them would be totally accurate. Personally, I prefer to see it as a love story of God, a merciful Father, endlessly pursuing His people. Now last week, we looked as Nehemiah faced all kinds of attacks. Remember Sambalad and Tobiah? They were laughing at him, making fun of him, telling even if a fox ran up your wall, it would probably fall over. And then all the nations came together and they plotted to come against this nation as they were building the wall Israel. You had the Samaritans were coming from the north. You had the Arabs from the south. The Ammonites from the west and the Ashidites were coming from the east. What did Nehemiah do? Nehemiah went to God in prayer. Thankful Nehemiah had established a relationship with the Father, his creator. It was sound inside him. He knew where to go and he knew who to go to. Didn't necessarily make it easy for what he had to go through, but I'm sure in his heart he knew where he had to be. Today the threats that Nehemiah is going to face are not coming from the north or the south or the east or the west. They're coming internally. They're coming from in the very nation that he governed. They were serious. And they were a threat. And Nehemiah stepped up. Today we call it the enemy within. I've got a little chart here. You get this, right? And if we look back and see what Nehemiah faced... Chapters 2 and 4, he faced ridicule. Chapter 2, he faced wrath in 6 through 9. Discouragement again in 4. Fear in 4. Today, internal strife. 6, when they finished the wall, laziness. 7, satanic subtlety. And then lying prophets. So this isn't a man who isn't without enduring. But today, I've broken our lesson down into three categories. First five verses I've called the dilemma. What's going to happen to Nehemiah is this eternal strife is going to come through an outcry. The second part that I've broken down is the deliberation. Nehemiah thinks about how he's going to handle this and what he's going to do. And then thirdly, 
the declaration. I've also called it a decision or a disclosure because Nehemiah complicates his, or contemplates his relationship with God. And we're able to actually look into Nehemiah's heart at that point and see what he's thinking and what God has done with him. So let's start and look at the dilemma. Let's read the first five verses. Nehemiah 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain and we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. The first thing that you can see here is that the attack and the outcry is not being perpetrated from the outside. It's coming from within. I actually think that can make it more complicated at, at, at times. It's easy to unite together against a common enemy on the outside, but when there's strife on the inside, it tends to build a tension that's even deeper. But chapter 5 opened with an outcry. We can safely assume that the problem was significant because it came from the Jewish brothers. And it included the wives. A reference to wives indicates that the situation was serious because it was not customary at that time for wives to speak up on any public uh, disturbances or outcries that were going on. In verse 2, we can see its basis was in their ability to eat and keep alive. But there were several factors that contributed to this food shortage. First, it is likely that prices to purchase were driven up by a demand caused by a recent famine. Second, construction of the wall required many of the men to stay in Jerusalem, which forced a shortage of the laborers to collect the harvest. We saw that back in chapter 4 when it was said, I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be guard for us by night and may labor by day. Remember when Israel was being attacked, Nehemiah had them stay and keep their swords at their side last week to stay near their own clan so that they could protect their own interest. They would have more coherence near their own people. But because they had stayed at the wall to protect, it was harvest time, there was nobody there to collect the food. And they felt it. And families found themselves in a real unenviable position of borrowing simply to merely exist. But their indebtedness took three specific forms. One, borrowing. Money was lent at high interest rate. It was exploitive. Two, homes and fields were being mortgaged and lost because of the people's inability to pay. Three, 
some would say was the worst, children being enslaved. Greed and exploitation were behind this dilemma. But there was something that was even worse. And it complicated the situation for me and Maya. The exploitation was at the hands of their own people. A people united under God and sacrificing for a common good. But there were some of the details in the exploitation we'll find here are pretty interesting. First of all, the borrowing, as we, if we jump ahead in verse 7, tells us that they were exacting interest, commonly known as usury to us. Our legal system establishes acceptable rates that different institutions are allowed to charge us, is that we, we know that. Excessive rates to us are known as loan sharking. Now, if you don't have good credit and you need a loan and you're not going to get one, you may go to a loan shark, but you're going to pay 30-40% and take a risk in doing it if you can't pay back because the penalties are severe. (laughs) But the established rates this time were close to 40 and 50%. And it was their own brothers charging them this. However, any rate of interest charged by a Jew to another who is poor was forbidden. Get Exodus 22.5. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. Rates were believed at some points to be as high as 50 and 60%. Look again at Deuteronomy. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money. Interest on food. Interest on anything that is lent for, for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest. That the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land and that you're entering to take possession of it. This was a nation set aside. This was a cohesive nation. This was a nation brought together. They had God's law. They knew it. I can understand why God would do this to keep them cohesive. But they abandon it here. The loans were me being made between the poor Jews and the noble Jews. The poor having no land, fields, or collateral. The second form that I talk about is mortgaging. Many Jews mortgage their homes and their farms and their fields just to make ends meet. Their equity was lost to the borrower as payment was impossible while sacrificing to work on the wall. The inability to harvest their crops not only relinquished their income, but also deprived them of their own sustenance. You're talking about starvation possibly here. Taxes had to be paid on the land. Assets of the home were taken away and repossessed by those who they were indebted to. Again, it was forbidden in Leviticus. And the third interesting issue that we have here is slavery. Now, unlike our understanding of slavery, this slavery was actually allowed biblically. It was born out of an indebtedness and relieved of obligation after six years in the seven year. However, Leviticus 23, 35-40 reads that the type of slavery fellow Jews were subjecting their brethren to this type of slavery was forbidden. 
They were to be treated as hired hands and not just simply as slaves. That was forbidden for them, but it happened anyways. Um, Probably one of the most offensive words that exist in the English language, the idea is slavery. It's hurt this nation terribly. We still feel the repercussions from many years ahead. It was ownership. It was degrading to men. It was seeing men because of the race or the color of the skin of not of equal value to another man. But the biblical slavery that was allowed here did not have that involved in it. If a family became in debt, they were given, and it was called slavery, they and their family, for at the most could be six years, and after that the debt was forgiven, and they were free to go on and assume whatever they wanted to do to achieve their position in life. It was a relief. So I, I want to try to get into your heads to try and get the idea of our feeling out of it the way it looked into the Bible. And it's very hard to do because I see it the same way. But to make matters even worse, in this situation that was happening, the children were being sold into slavery alone, resulting in the breakup of the families. Nehemiah's situation was further complicated by the fact that the economic repression the poor Jews were suffering was imposed by his own brethren. Let me repeat that. This was being imposed by, to Jews, by fellow Jews, not by the outside. He understood this and used it as a heart of the argument against him. Nehemiah could have seen this as a time and a very delicate issue, and might have chosen to tread lightly because it was not attached to an outside enemy, but he didn't. He rises as a leader and confronts the problem head on. You know, sometimes it feels like the hardships we suffer are unfair. For Nehemiah, he just endured the surrounding attacks of the neighboring tribes and people. Now he's facing eternal threat from his own brethren. And it almost seems unfair for poor Nehemiah. Why would God allow such hardships when he was dedicated to him and his cause? My experience has been for God's people, he usually doesn't remove our hardships, but he walks through them with us. Psalm 23 so beautifully testifies, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Remember Jesus asked the Father before he went to the cross if there was any way to remove this cup, but God didn't. It was for our sin that Jesus suffered. It wasn't his. Talk about unfair. Perhaps God's purpose is that when we do endure, our faith is strengthened. And what an example he gives us. Through suffering, God cultivates in us a saving and enduring faith. Ultimately, he is glorified and our joy is complete in Christ. It takes time, but God's with us. Nehemiah endured these trials 
and he endured him with God's people. A chosen people that he would use to fulfill his plan of redemption all the way to the cross. A plan that would bring salvation to all who would place their faith in Christ. To endure through faith was God's purpose. To endure through faith in Christ alone is God's way. The gospel is that good news. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And I am the truth, the life, and the way. Takes us to the deliberation now. Verses 6 through 13. I actually couldn't get them all on the board, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read them, and then the key ones, I think, will stay up there for you. So 6 through 13. We'll see how Nehemiah handled this. Well, he says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother, And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Nehemiah, first of all, recognized the problem. Now that's saying something. Because some men have the problem standing right in front of it, and they don't ever admit it's there. I really think some men don't see it. But Nehemiah did. He also recognized his anger. Verse 7 tells us, he took counsel with himself. As any good leader... He wrestled with the problem in his own mind and its ramifications, and then he took action. Chapter chapter 4 revealed that Nehemiah was a man of prayer. No doubt his wrestling included God's counsel here. It would have had to. God gives us great counsel here. He says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. That's Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Then, he immediately brought the charges against the accused. You know, presenting these ugly charges against his brethren took courage. To let sin flourish would not have been godly for Nehemiah. 
Nehemiah did not repeat Adam's mistake. Adam complied. Nehemiah confronted. Remember in the garden, guys. She went off, was tempted by the devil. She picked the fruit. Adam, the head of the household, stood there and enjoyed it with her. He could have said no. He could have stopped it and said, this is what God wants us to do. But he didn't. Nehemiah didn't do that. Nehemiah stood up and said, we are not going to do that to our people. To present the charges, Nehemiah held a great assembly against them. You know, what Nehemiah really did here is what we're used to, is he kind of took over the bully pulpit. He let him have it a little bit. He preached to them and he told them what they were doing wrong. And in verse 8 it tells us how he accused them. To paraphrase, you sold what we bought back. This must have been excruciatingly painful for those who heard it if it was true repentance in their heart. Because as they had come out of exile, many of their brothers were sold to foreign nations. They had done their best as a nation to get these people back. And they purchased them out of slavery. And now Nehemiah looks out and watches his own brothers and sisters selling his own brothers and sisters in slavery even worse to each other. That's how bad it was at this time. And Nehemiah didn't back down for it. He let him have it. I'm very appreciative that he did. You know, silence can speak louder than words. And the response of the accused here was deafening. Nehemiah continued by telling them what they did was not good. And then challenges them to walk in the fear of our God. He tells them to do that so they won't be under the condemnation of other nations. After all, who is Israel? A nation set apart to the one true God? To be a shining light on a hill? Illuminating God's glory to a lost world? Look what it says they are in Acts 13:7. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. How do you think those other nations felt when they looked out and saw Israel selling their own daughters to their own people? It must have been pretty embarrassing for everybody involved. In verse 10, Nehemiah assumes some of the guilt along with his brothers and encourages them to abandon these sinful practices. In the next verse, we see him command them to restore to their brethren all that they have extracted from their fields, their vineyards, their homes, etc. And then require nothing of them. Effectively, he relieved any debt owed. Verse 12 ends in unity. We will do as you say. I think that that was a beautiful picture of repentance. A nation who was called on their sin and turned from it in guilt and back to their people. Remember when Jesus was introduced by John? John said, repent 
for the kingdom of God is here. It's a calling. Sometimes we don't have pretty pictures here in the Bible painted. This is kind of a nice one as this nation turns. Nehemiah, I believe, recognized the enormity of the people's response. And then he called his accused to an oath. He performed a customary ritual called shaking out. Typically Jewish garments would contain a fold in them where people would maintain their valuables. They call them fold, I guess we call them pockets. So he emptied his and displayed to the people to do the same and implied that the valuables would be taken from them if they didn't follow through with their promise. You know, when the guilty truly repent, God is glorified, a nation is restored, the poor will endure, and the wall is going to be finished in 52 days, as chapter 6, verse 10 will tell us. In unison they said, Amen. Praise the Lord and kept their promises. The last part of this chapter gives us insight into Nehemiah. And I I hope you find it as interesting as I did because it kind of gives you an idea of where he's thinking. But I did read in some of the commentaries that it could be mistaken for a bit of of arrogance or self-aggrandization. Let's read it and, and see what you think. I've only, I could only fit a couple of the verses on here, so I'll read the whole thing, but if you have your Bibles, follow along with me. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid very heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered here for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Not what was repaired at my expense, for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds. And every ten days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet, for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was so heavy on his people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all I have done for this people. The final six verses of this chapter offer some insight into the heart of Nehemiah. We learn that he's been appointed governor of the province by the Persian overlords. This would have given Nehemiah great power and would have given him an opportunity to lord over God's people as he saw fit. He would have been able to levy taxes, enforce justice, exploit anyone who he wanted to, enrich himself, uh, or he could have chosen to serve God. 
Verse 15 reveals that past governors had taken advantage of their position. Where verse 14 tells us that Nehemiah didn't do that. Then he tells us why he didn't do that. Because of the fear of God. Proverbs 9 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Progressive revelation adds to that verse. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Verse 16 and 18 disclose the sacrifices Nehemiah made by demands he did not make and what he had prepared at his own expense. As governor, it would have been his responsibility to host dignitaries and travelers and officials that came through from different lands and different countries. But he didn't, rich, he didn't enrich himself as verse 18. It was because the demands were so heavy on his people. He felt their hurt. And he didn't exploit because of simple compassion. Nehemiah had a love for God and a love for others. What motivated, what motivated Nehemiah was his love for God. When Jesus was asked, what are the two greatest commandments? He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and all your mind. And the second is likewise. To love your neighbor as yourself. Nehemiah exemplified this both in the way he treated his brethren as revealed here and in the way he pursued his role and purposed himself in God's plan of redemption in history. Pressing ahead with God's plan, honoring his creator in both word and both in deed. Nehemiah leaves us in verse 19 by asking God for his favor. Nehemiah did not try to impress other men or exploit his fellow man. Nehemiah desired the favors of God. This was his prayer. Not an account of his accomplishments. Nehemiah had a heart for God. So what can we learn from Nehemiah? How do we apply today's lesson to our lives? Give this some practical meaning. One, from chapter four we knew he had an extensive prayer life. This is important to every Christian to know your God. be able to speak with him and to know to listen to his voice. Nehemiah was guided by the will of God and he contemplated his counsel in prayer. He knew his faith in a sovereign God and that's what helped him persevere against all the attacks both internal and external. Number two, Nehemiah 
was not afraid to name sin. That's a condition today that we seem to struggle with. People always say, who am I to judge? If God named it sin, it's sin. That's not a judgment. He said it, not I. Nehemiah wasn't a man to sugarcoat truth. God's word is truth. And Nehemiah wasn't hesitant to stand firm on it. Third, Nehemiah didn't delay. I know that's something that I do, very honestly. But he didn't. Nehemiah didn't delay or procrastinate. Nehemiah named sin and he took action immediately. Clearly, we are to address sin with both truth and love. But never are we to treat it with a wink and a nod and make believe it's not there. Fourth, be the man God wants you to be. Don't wait for a Nehemiah to appear in your life. Be a Nehemiah. God gives us many of our aspects of our lives that we are in control of. Fathers, who's the head of your family? Who guides and raises your children? Who protects them and provides for them? Do you spend time with you? Do you raise them? Do you teach them godly principles? Or do you not have enough time because your ball game or television show is on? Is it an inconvenience to you? Or is it a joy in your responsibility? Ladies, you're not off the hook either. As a mother, are you raising your children with the knowledge of the Lord? Are you supporting your husband when he needs support? Or are you making it difficult on him? We all have positions of leadership. I'm not off the hook either. As a pastor, am I shepherding my church faithfully? Am I loving you, his people, that he's entrusted me with? Or do I disregard my responsibilities and take them lightly? I pray I don't, and I pray that the Lord can guide me in this. Number five, repent. Where sin has taken hold in an area of your life, humble yourself and turn to God. Ask for forgiveness and help. And then, go in a different direction. Be thankful when God's criticism comes at you. It's very difficult for many of us to do that. I understand it. It's not always easy to me to hear criticism. But there's somehow there's something in us as Christian when another man brings it to us in love and his spirit that we can recognize it. And we should turn and go in a different direction. As the band comes forward, the lesson we learn from Nehemiah guide us as we take our Lord's gospel to others. Don't expect easy sailing. The good news our Savior commissioned his people, those who have faith in Christ to take to the world, 
was sovereignly performed by his faithful servant, Nehemiah. Redemptive history graciously provides us with Nehemiah's example, along with his people. Seek God's will. Stand firm on his truth. Repent of your sins and don't delay. These lessons God taught us through Nehemiah. God purposed Nehemiah and his people to construct the wall that fortressed the temple. However, walls can fail. Evidenced by the rebuilding that Nehemiah was doing. The wall served to point to an even greater fortress. An indestructible fortress. Death is the ultimate enemy for those who are perishing. But through Christ, the sting of death has been surrendered. This temporary fortress pointed to Jesus. Jesus one day would walk through the gates of this man-made wall, symbolically saying, I am the ultimate fortress, known to those who believe in him as the gospel. The atoning death of Christ our Lord bringing salvation to all who would place their faith in him. His resurrection is our receipt. Glory be to God, our ultimate fortress. Amen.